0: Ready graphics, ready theme, two one. Good evening, tonight?
1: Really thrilling to be on a set early on like that and see them making their relationships like Will and Grace I did it early on mm-hmm. and that is really fun because you watch them developing who they are and they all came up with such characters and every one of them had a quality that the show needed that they figured out.
2: Hi, this is Lauren
3: Milberger, and this is Jesse Mullins.
2: So, real quick, guys, this interview with Mary Pat Gleason we actually recorded in what, ju- what June, July? Wow, it was July? such a long time ago.
3: Yeah, it was in the summer.
2: In fact, Jesse and I were in the same room together.
3: Yes, Yes. right before I moved. So it must have been July.
2: We just wanted to let you know because uh, she does reference having not seen the revival. And we love this interview with Mary Pat so much. Mm -hmm. But we got so many opportunities with the revival to interview people and cover. And so we unfortunately
3: had to hold on to
2: this episode until now.
3: But we're so excited to share it with you. Enjoy. So we have Mary Pegleason, who you know as Olga from... Season 1, episode 16, Moscow on the Potomac. As the amazing Olga. Yeah, she was Vlad's secretary, mm-hmm. if people don't remember. And she's
2: been on tons of television.
3: In a great small world, she is college friends and lifelong good friends with Mary Muller Liley. It makes total sense why they are friends. Yes. They're both the same lovely, open, just font of knowledge you are again going to learn something and be so moved by this episode she has some um, some great stories she's so warm we could have talked to her for hours mm-hmm.
2: and will the mystery guest please sign
1: in the mystery guest is mary pat gleason i'm a dear friend of Marianne ann muller but i am not her. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, everybody. hi welcome to the show thank you so much for
3: coming on my pleasure. So we are we are very excited um, to inter- interview you. Um, obviously, in particular about your excellent work on Murphy Brown. But before we get into that, we always love to hear um, what we call the origin story of our contributing artists and creators. So we'd love to hear what what got you into performing. Did you grow up with it? Did you go to school for it? We just love to hear your story. How you came to be.
1: Well, I I first started uh, in in Minnesota doing uh, community theater in high school and beginnings of college, but I thought I was going into nursing. So that's what I was taking classes in, and one time I did a show with Marianne muller by the way. She played, we were doing Once Upon a Mattress, and she was playing the Nightingale of Samarkand. Oh, she was
3: I hilarious. love that show. It's such
1: a Minnesota show. Hilarious. Well, and of course, Ann playing a nightingale because she's tall. She's about five eight. She's a she's a substantial girl as I am, and she would come cartwheeling on as the the nightingale, and I laughed every night. I thought, Oh, that's incredible! Actors in the world, and I, I laughed every time. But anyway, two props there. Um, uh, Charles Nolte, who was teaching there, and Terry Kilburn, who ran the Meadowbrook Theater in Michigan, came and saw the show with Doc Whiting, who was the head of the theater department. And they met with me after a show one night and said, what are you doing here at the U? And I said, well, I'm I'm either going to do child psych or nursing. And they said, we think you're not. We think you're going to do theater, and we want you in the theater department. So that's how it started for me. I had never really thought I'd take it seriously. I thought I'd just do it for fun.
2: Well, you played a lot of nurses. Yeah. According to your IMDb. So I have
1: played a ton of <laughs> nurses, and I know a lot about them. All my <laughs> sisters are nurses. Oh. Nursing really. was a big thing in my family. Yeah, and I have I have uh, four older sisters, and I have a younger brother. And my younger brother married a nurse, so in, my mother worked in pathology. So the entire family was in nursing, but me. Oh, Although wow. I worked in I worked in the hospitals a long time, that was my part time job getting myself through college. And I uh, was staffing secretary at Saint Joe's Hospital in Saint Paul, and then I was uh, an assistant to uh, the anesthesiologist in surgery for a year and a half. Which is a job that doesn't exist for a layperson anymore. I was trained in surgical drugs and their Mm -hmm. instruments, and I would hand them things during surgery.
2: Wow. Well, this reminds me of, you know, we spoke about Bonnie Hunt with Mm -hmm. Marianne, and Bonnie Hunt started as an oncology nurse Mm -hmm.
1: in Chicago, I believe. That's right. Yes, I know Bonnie. Isn't she fabulous? Yeah, we're big fans.
3: Big fans. I would say it's a a very different kind of day job than what uh, us actors do nowadays. (laughs)
1: right. Well, when I finally moved to New York, because we were in college, and I was in college with a bunch of my buddies, including Mary Ann, and we all decided at one point, what the heck, let's see if we can really make this work. Let's go to New York and see if we can get uh, get a career going. And so um, we all left from the University of Minnesota and went to New York, and the jobs that Mary and I did in New York were hilarious. <laughs> we passed out yogurt, we passed out free cigarettes, and what we would do is we would stand on the street corners, and Marianne and I would work on our accents. So we would look at her and go, Irish. So for an hour, we'd be Irish. Swedish, German, Russian.
3: I, oh, <laughs> oh, this, this is we love, wonderful. We,
1: we love that. It was
3: hilarious. I have done it that at a, at a restaurant job where I was uh, calling and confirming reservations for most of a day, and we would just pick the uh, accent we were going to work on that day.
2: Yeah, I did that with telemarketing.
1: I Isn't that fun? Mm. I love that yeah. you did that because, my God, we had a good time. <laughs> and people would sometimes say, you're not really Russian, are you? <laughs> Miriam, you've work on that one. It's not good. <laughs> not good. Nobody's buying it. Yeah, I got
2: caught. <laughs> I, I worked at a theme restaurant, and mm. I got caught because they kept saying, oh, no, you, you, you can't be. But they really believed in me because they were from um, London. And I said, movies instead of cinema?
3: And they're like, we caught you, we caught you. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right, I'm not. Yeah, you're
1: right. <laughs> I, have also,
3: I have also handed out things on the street. When I first moved to New York, I handed out caffeinated pomegranate juice right outside Fashion Week, Ooh. and nobody wanted my pomegranate juice. What a shocker. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I have one, too. I was doing a play called Jitters in, out of town and in uh the Pittsburgh and we came in I mean in Philadelphia we came into New York and we're supposed to open at the Helen Hayes and the show got closed out of town so we never opened but we were up on a big billboard and our pictures were there and it was being announced and we got a phone call from Dannon to pass out yogurt that night so our opening night <laughs> I came to pass out yogurt and there was my girlfriend who was doing the show with me and she had a big pair of sunglasses on and it's about seven o'clock at night and I said, What are you wearing sunglasses for? And she said, I don't want anybody to recognize me. <laughs> and I said, Helena, who's going to recognize you? We never open. <laughs> never opened. They don't know who we are. I oh. thought it was hilarious. Oh, that's I crazy. thought, Fabulous. On my opening night, I'm passing out free Dan and yogurt. Uh, and that's how I, you know, these things in careers, so many yeah. funny things happen, but that was really a delicious one. It made me laugh all night.
3: Oh, I. I also appreciate when every time that we speak to, to actors who are, are connected to the show in some way, I love hearing those real stories about what you did while you were on your way to getting to be a, a full-time actor. I don't think a lot of people realize how much you have to do before you get those credits. I mean, clearly you were working long before right. your first you know, IMDb credit in 1980. You're, you're right.
2: Yeah, and I always think it's important because uh, sometimes when people talk about their story, because it is so long, they skip over the sort of early parts and... And it's important for people to know that there is a struggle and that, it, you know, particularly an acting career, you know, ebbs and flows. It isn't just a straight line.
1: Right. Right. I know I see people get I, I, I taught with a friend of mine, Joel Brooks, for about nine years. who so We taught an audition for film and television class. Oh, wow. And we said, you know, you guys you got to get muscles for this. Between Joel and I, we have done thousands of auditions.
0: Mm-hmm. You've
1: got to have a relationship with rejection. And the audition isn't really to get the job. It's to go in and do your very best so that you can walk out and say, I'm happy with that and then you think next. Even if next mm-hmm. is go pick up your laundry, move along. Yeah. Because you're gonna do a lot of these and if you're gonna have muscles form, you can't you can't fall apart after each one. You have to care.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to care with your whole heart and work really hard on the audition, but you have to be able to let go.
3: That is beautiful. Yeah. That's it's it's that's probably one of the Best articulated forms of that advice I've I've probably ever heard.
1: Oh, how sweet! So, what brought you to LA? Well, I was interestingly enough. I also wrote for Guiding Light. We were going to talk to you about that. That's an Emmy. Yes, isn't that funny? <laughs> yes. uh, you know, it, it's kind of. But anyway, that that is indeed what brought me to LA because we we won an Emmy for our work, and I had had uh, some physical stuff that went on. I had had um, a hospitalization and got a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, and I, which did not interfere with my work at all. But I thought, you know, I I have really been in L.A. now a long time. I mean, in New York a long time. And a friend wrote me a note, and he said, um, oh, my God, the note was so funny. He's a hilarious man. He said, okay, Mary Pat. This is while I'm living in New York, and it's right after I won the Emmy. He said, you won an Emmy, you got your heart broken, you had a nervous breakdown, you cleaned houses for a living for five years. You've done New York. Come to L.A. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> you know what? You did.
1: It's, uh, it's yeah, right. I've done New York. There's not That's in the brochure. Do. I'm moving on. Yes, but that was an interesting thing. I was working on Guiding Light as an actress, playing the secretary to the Baroness von Helkine. <laughs> Couldn't have been funnier. My name was Jane Hogan. And um, I used to, because I was there all the time, and you have lots of hours in between shooting sometimes when you're not in the scene, so you're at the studio. And I used to go into the booth and watch what they were doing. And I would talk to the directors and say things like, that's so interesting that you're shooting her. I would be shooting him because I'm interested in what he's thinking. And you know, then they would say, bad, well, get out of the booth. So I'd leave. <laughs> But I talked to the head writer, and, you know, we just talked about this a lot. And then one day I decided that I had gotten very comfortable on this job playing Jane Hogan, and it was a wonderful job. But I thought, do you came to New York to stretch, to really see what your chops were and to do different things. And you've gotten comfortable making regular money because you never did that. And now you're getting a little lazy about going out and looking for work. So I went in and told the producers. This has been the greatest job I've ever had, and you guys have been absolutely fabulous, but I wanted to give you four weeks' notice, because I'm going to leave. I'm looking to do a little more theater and to do some other things. So I went home, and I think it was a day later, I got a phone call from the head of the studio, and uh, she said, Gail Kobe, at the time, fabulous woman, she was our producer, and she said, Mary Pat, I'm calling because I want to know if you'd like to be the editor of the film. And I, said, oh, I don't know the first thing about tape and cutting tape and film. So I know nothing about it. And through his box. Not tape, you idiots. The script. Oh. And then, <laughs> I said, I can't believe that you just called me an idiot and offered me a job. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I thought about it for a little bit and thought, you know what the heck? Why not try something brand new? Maybe editing would be fun and I've always loved writing. Mm-hmm. So I said yes. And then I asked her, I need to have the editor there for at least uh, two weeks to train me because I've never done this and I don't know the job. And there are 15 writers I'm dealing with. I need, I need some help, I need some supervision. And the first day that I arrived for the first meeting, I walked in and I said, I'd like to meet the editor. And they said, well, he's not here, he just quit. And I said, he just quit. And they said, yeah, we had a fight he quit. And I said, so I don't have anybody to train with? And they said, no. And I said, oh my God. Oh, my God, this is just how oh my life goes. I can't believe I'm going to be the editor. I don't know what I'm doing. So I had to just jump in and learn. And, and as it turned out, I just adored the team of writers. We had fabulous writers on that show. And we all became close friends, and the job worked out, and we won an Emmy, which was fantastic. So I got an Emmy for writing Guiding Light. And that
2: was in 1986, correct, just for our audience?
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I thought, you know, Marianne had moved to LA. We were dearest friends. She was having a good time there and doing a lot in television and film. And I thought, gee, I've always loved television and film and I'd like to do more films. So I thought, I'm going to go to LA and I did. It.
3: Well, and speaking of around that time, so that was 1986. Three years later was 1989, which was a very good year for you on IMDb here, <laughs> um, including you finally got to uh, use that Russian accent you had practiced so hard on Murphy Brown.
1: That's right. That's right. Oh, my God, that was fun. And I had pals that were writing the show, too. I think my, my dear friend, Michael Patrick King, who wrote Sex in the City and Two Broke Girls and a ton of other things, he, was writing on Murphy Brown. He at did, that but time. not
2: at the time you were there, mm-hmm. actually. Oh, he wasn't. Was he yeah. there before me? Um, no, in and, okay, so th- then, you were actually in- We auditioned
1: a lot before you got a. Before you got one of those secretaries They needed to run you by them a few times <laughs> Just to feel like you were the right person
2: It's probably surprising because the writing was so good But you were actually in the first season of Murphy Brown mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that's right Yeah That's right Yeah Well, and Candace Bergen Oh, my God, I had so much fun with her Candace thought it was- hilarious that I'd get a laugh on the word no and she laughed at me every time we laughed and laughed it couldn't have been more fun
3: I mean you are a presence in that episode and I think (laughs) something that stands out for me is I mean and including a a credit of yours that we want to talk about in a minute uh, but even in uh, Troop Beverly Hills, you're listed as kindly troop leader. I, I always remember you in most of my entertainment as using your very kind face and your very kind demeanor, which is probably why you end up as a nurse a lot, uh, great bedside manner. Uh, you don't carry that as <laughs> Olga. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I did not. Olga is quite intimidating.
1: Yes, well, you know, it's interesting because they give you an accent and it comes with a whole... Aura and feeling of a people, mm-hmm. and I felt that she was in dead earnest and not completely amused by what she saw. <laughs> so I thought, <laughs> "That's how I'll go in. I'll go in, kind of skeptical of everybody there." <laughs> it was so that great. was fun, and it was a great well, it was a you.
3: great uh, contradiction to Robin Strasser on the other side. Yes. How was that working with with that team? I'm working with um, a major character in the episode who was was also brand new to the set, but also with the FYI gang.
1: Well, uh, that crew was absolutely fantastic. You know, they say when a show is great, it is great from the top down, and when it stinks, it stinks from the top down. Mm -hmm. And that show was heaven for everybody who ever worked it. The direction, the actors, the scripts, the writing—Diane English is just a genius. I just, I just adore her. And kind, and and funny, and just compassionate. She's smart as they come, and everybody on that set was really intelligent. It was really fun to be on it, and they had such a good time with one another. They, they were—you could—it's—it's. really thrilling to be on a set early on like that and see them making their relationships like will and grace i did early on Mm -hmm. and that is really fun because you watch them developing who they are and they all came up with such characters and every one of them had a quality that the show needed that they figured out you know and i even got to work with that delicious pat corley whom i'm sorry is gone from us now Mm -hmm. but he was so wonderful he was that bar he was Mm -hmm. that conversation you know you look forward to them going in there
3: yeah you're one of the few uh guest actors who gets to have a one-on-one with phil that's right i want you guys to have your own little web web series just olga and phil chatting
2: yeah she said that during when we covered the episode
3: oh
1: that's funny that would be fun that would have been fun yeah sweet phil
2: Do you remember anything about the audition process or the week? We know it was a long time ago, but anything that a story that sort of jumps out at you about working on the show?
1: Let me think. Well, there was one dear thing that happened. Um, uh, Corky. The girl played Corky. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Faith. I I was just having trouble recalling Faith's name. Faith came to me at one point and she had a big audition and I had been wearing this pair of earrings that belonged to my grandmother, and I always had some little signature piece on me that's my little talisman mm-hmm. for the character I'm playing, and I had these garnet, beautiful little daisy garnet earrings on that were very, very old, and she admired them, and she said, you know, I've got a big interview, and I don't have anything decent to wear for jewelry, could I wear those earrings? So I said, of course you can, Faith. I'd be happy to loan them to you. And so she wore them for that interview that she went to, which was really a fun thing. You know, that's really a, a girl-friendly, fun thing that would only happen on a set.
3: Mary Pat, that is the most Minnesotan thing I've ever heard. You you represent our people well.
1: That's so generous. Oh, you know, I know. Am, I am a Minnesota girl. too, yes. And, and I'm teased about it constantly.
3: I love it. You make me feel like I'm at home talking to my aunt. Honey, you are. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yes, I am
2: from yeah, New Jersey, fun. and so I apologize. <laughs>
1: oh. Yeah. I just apologize. Jersey toy blank. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we love those people from Jersey.
2: Yes, we do. And we like to leave Jersey. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, we do.
1: <laughs> uh was there
3: anything for that you noticed uh script-wise as you were as you were working on Olga did uh, was there anything that Um, Unique about the receiving the script and working with that throughout the week?
1: Well, you know, it's wonderful to do a table read and at a table read that's the first thing that you do which you probably already know Um, Things change dramatically, Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, the the first script is not necessarily the script you work with but the second the first rewrite They were so sure of the note that they wanted Olga to ring that my lines did not change a lot. What was tricky for me is at one point at Phil's, I have to order a hamburger. And we all had this ongoing funny joke of how you say hamburger in Russian. I think it came out hamburger. And he said, no, that wouldn't be yet. And then people would give me another line reading. And it got so that if I said hamburger, we all laughed. So that was fun. Hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't, I'm, have you ever actually been able to use your Russian accent again in anything else? Yeah,
1: I did a thing. I did a, a, a small film called Wrist um, Cutters. That was really fascinating. And um, I played a Russian in that. And that was really a lovely opportunity because it was a lot of dialogue and, and several scenes. So I really got to work on the accent and work on the feel of being Russian. And I felt really good about that work. It's a, it's a really terrific film. And um, Garen, the young man who wrote it, uh, was was a deep, complicated young man who was very concerned about why people attempt suicide, what mm-hmm. happens. And it's all about what happens to a young man who, who commits suicide and what happens after that, where mm-hmm. you go and what happens with your family and friends. And it's a fascinating concept that he had on death in on suicide
3: oh i see this here yes it was in 2006 just recently
1: yes
0: right yes
3: uh nick offerman was in that oh wow um yes. and will arnett
1: and leslie you have some that's i have to check this out yeah me too yes in their wonderful performances i think you'd like it mm-hmm. no um, it's very fantastical and interesting and full of uh, spirituality and a little mysticism, and it's really beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful script. I was really happy to be a part of it. I was thrilled they asked me and happy to be a part of it.
2: Now, is there anything about Murphy Brown that you wanted to talk about that um, we haven't asked you No, I think
1: you know it's so interesting because my part was so small yeah. it was you know great to be there, but it was so small and my my way that I conduct myself on a set is I try to stay to myself as much as I can and out of the way, I watch everything that's going on, but I stay out of it because I feel everybody's got so much work, and particularly in the first year of a show. Mm-hmm. People have got a lot of work to do to keep figuring out who they are when they get new a new scenario. Who am I now if this happens? So um, I didn't have a lot of contact with everybody, but the contact that I did have was so warm and inviting. They could not have welcomed me more warmly, and they couldn't have been more supportive. They, they laugh at each other and cheer each other on, and they are, they're politically smart. I really think that this is going to be a fascinating new show because I think that they will help us laugh at things that nobody can laugh at right now. Mm-hmm. And they'll bring up subjects that need to be brought up, but in a manner that's not, that's not vicious. It 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 will be hopeful because that's who they are.
3: Absolutely,
2: mm. that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Now you've appeared in a lot of shows from our childhood, yes. a lot of movies from our childhood. Um, but I think a sort of a bridge between Murphy Brown is that you were on an episode of Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but with two actors yes, from Murphy I Brown, do. Janet Carroll, who went on to play Doris, mm-hmm. the first Doris, and then that's Scott right. Bakula, who went on to play Peter.
1: Yeah. What was your experience on that? And Scott Bakula is really a friend of mine. Oh. I knew him from New York. I got to know him in New York. And I knew his uh, first wife, Krista. Uh, we did Once Upon a Mantra. No, we did We did Annie, Get Your Gun Together oh, and f- got to be friends. Yeah, which couldn't have been more fun in Minnesota. And so I knew Scott and uh, and got to know his kids. And he was even Marianne Muller-Liley had a 50th birthday party for me at her house. And we decided to do kind of a country western theme, and Scott came all dolled up in western gear, and his kids were in western gear, and it couldn't have been more fun. That's There were so about oh I see a hundred people great. there, and so and Janet Carol and I did a, a musical here that uh, a friend of mine Nancy Shane wrote called Two Bitter Women in a Coffee Shop, and it was hilarious. I want was: to know that. Yeah, that sounds hilarious. It was funny. Maybe
3: that's just us on a on a Tuesday. Yeah. It's a
1: great title. Two bitter women in a coffee shop and it was good. It was really good.
2: And that was in 89's. So that was also your really good year. Good year. It was also the first season of Quantum Leap. Yes. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, sort of that's starting right. things out.
3: Wow, you're like the kiss that's of success. Right. Pretty much, yeah. You go know, into the first season they're good to go.
2: <laughs> yeah. And um, I had forgotten that there's a young Jason Priestley in that episode mm-hmm. as well.
1: Oh, that's right. Oh, you girls do your research. I love that so much. <laughs> you probably were, know more about
3: we're big Quantum Leap fans. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Good. I was too. I loved it. Well,
3: and, and speaking of big fans, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead um, to another show, which if you listen to our podcast, I mentioned pretty much any chance I have, uh, which is that you were in Murder, <laughs> She Wrote in one of their later seasons. I
1: was. And I wanted to do one of those so badly. I think I auditioned about eight times for that show before I finally got that part.
3: And you were a you were a reference librarian. I remember that episode. It was one of the first ones in New York. That's right. That's
1: right. Uh, and working with you know, it, what a fabulous cast! What a fabulous cast that was, and I loved Murder She Wrote. I just it's thought it so was good. terrific.
3: It was so good, and I I appreciated that as a, a show, much like Murphy Brown, where it took some of the stigma away of being of a certain age. And um, yes, I was saying you're you're actually in one of the one of the seasons that I particularly love because it's when Angela Lansbury said, no, we're not going off the air yet. And she took the reins to change up
1: the the formula a bit. Yes. Well, there's another woman that, you know, has been known all her life for being extremely brilliant and proactive and strong. And, you know, if you've ever had the great privilege of seeing her on stage, she's Mm -hmm. stunning. We
2: have, yeah.
1: And she was there too. She's just a, she's a top drawer pro and, she 's elegant, and she brings that elegance with every character that she does now, I have been very, very blessed in my career to work with a lot of stars. I just got lucky that my scenes were with big stars, mm-hmm. and I have seen um i 've had the opportunity to learn from every one of them, and they are not stars for naught; they work so. Hard, and they are so on top of their material and, you know, it's a rare occasion that you run into somebody and use these because they're overwhelmed or doing three projects at a time that they're loose on their lines and having some difficulty. And it's usually because they they are busy. they got a lot of other things going on, and they just haven't got it nailed like they'd like to.
2: Mm-hmm. Speaking of also 1989, mm-hmm. again, this is the theme, a movie from our childhood that Jesse and I really love, oh. and a lot of people of our generation do, is a movie called Troop Beverly Hills. Love that movie. Which you have a, a role in. Do you remember working on that film?
1: Oh, I do. I do. That was really, really fun. You know, um, uh, it, it was... It was a, a thing that um, I was excited because it was a film and because it was with people that I really liked, and, uh, you know, Shelley was hilarious, mm-hmm. and people were terrific, and what a wonderful actress, and her star was just rising then, so it was really fun.
3: I was going to say, at this point, you, according at least to your, uh, to your resume here, you had done mostly
1: theater and television at that point. Right, Exactly. I started in film with uh, a film called Author, Author with uh, Al Pacino in New York, and I got cut out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then I think, then I uh, uh, went on, you know, to start really doing film in Los Angeles, and that was fun for me, because I was a film girl when I was little. When I, I loved film, mm-hmm. and there were several of them that I just thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be heaven if you could do that at some point? Mm-hmm. And... Um, I went all the way back to the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies. I watched a lot of musicals and I watched a lot of film noir and uh, just wanted to be able to do that. I thought it would be a wonderful, fun thing to do. So I was thrilled when I got a break and started doing film.
2: Yeah. And I always remember you, Mm -hmm. even though you have small parts, like a film that we actually uh, brought up recently twice actually on the podcast is Defending Your Life. Yes. and, and you oh, got to work, yes. work with Albert Brooks and as soon as I was looking at your IMDb I went, oh I know exactly yeah. who she was in that film mm-hmm. uh, Do you remember working with Albert Brooks and what that experience was like? Vividly
1: That was really a special experience because I auditioned a couple of times for that and one day I got a phone call and they said, can you come out to uh, Orange County because they shot this out by Disneyland those cars <laughs> that they were wheeling around in that whole set Oh, that makes. So sense. I went out and they they said, you're going to meet with Albert. And I said, oh, okay. So they said, you're going to go to his dressing room and he wants to run lines. And then my first kind of went, oh, I've got this part. <laughs> <laughs> so, I hadn't, I hadn't, so I hadn't been looking at it or studying it or anything. I didn't know what this meeting was going to be. So I knocked on his dressing room door and he said, come on in. And he was, you know, do, working on a few things. And he sat down across from me. I was on a sofa and he was on a chair. He said, okay, let's run this scene. And I said, Albert, I'm too fast to you. I I, I thought this was just a meeting. I haven't looked at the scene. And he said, well, here it is. So he handed me the scene and we looked at it and then we went to church. He said, okay, let's go. And I said, no, Albert, I need one minute here. (laughs) So um, He he was very funny because he's kind of drumming his fingers waiting on me. And he is too funny. So finally, I said, okay. And we did the scene. And they said, okay, well, we're going to run into hair and makeup. And I thought, oh my God, we're doing this day!" I couldn't believe it. It was so interesting. Wow. So really fast. We we kind of went off to do this thing, and uh, we started on the set, and I had this huge track laid on the ground that the camera was on because the camera ran in front of me, so I had to walk through this track along this counter to get to Albert at the counter. And as you know, he wrote it and directed it and started it. So he was doing everything, and he's just a genius. Mm -hmm. So I would come in and and, um, (laughs) do this scene, and he would ask for a glass of water, and I'd give him the glass of water, and then he started to choke. So I stopped completely and said, wait, Albert's choking. And I said, can I help you? And he said, oh, I was just kidding you. (laughs) And I said, you were just kidding. That's pretty funny. So. We went back to do it again. I I came back in. I did the thing. He started to choke, and I watched it for a minute, and I thought, oh, God, he's fooling around, and he really is choking. I said, we got to stop. He's choking again. And he said, I'm not choking. And I said, how long are you going to do this to me? (laughs) So then I came back. I walked down the line, and we did it again. He started to choke, and I thought, no matter what happens, I'm ignoring him. (laughs) <laughs> so I just kept doing what I was doing, and I kept doing what I was doing, and finally raised his hand. He started joking. All of a sudden, I knew it. I knew you'd joke. That was so mean. So we laughed about that. That's what happens when you cry wolf, Albert. Yeah. That's what happens when you cry wolf, Albert. And then at one point, as they do shooting, he he went to the camera and was no longer sitting at the counter when they did my close up, mm. and. We did the scene, and he said, Cut, cut, what's going on here? I feel like your energy. And they said, Albert, you are one of the most dynamic human beings I've ever met in my life. And if you want me to pretend to you, that's going to be tricky. And he said, I'll sit in for myself. But I said, I can't believe you're going to do that. That's so generous. I said, you just... You just are amazing that you're willing to do that. Oh, and he that did. Nice. And he was just just heaven. And in the middle of shooting, he stopped once and said, hey, a light went out in here. Now, there's probably 500 lights that were on. He sensed behind his back while he's directing, while he's acting, while he's watching, that one light went out. Wow. wow. I thought, oh, my God, this guy is just wired for sound. But I thought that was a beautiful film, Mm -hmm. just a beautiful film. And I was delighted to play the waitress in heaven. (laughs) And over the years since that film, I was on a plane one time at Christmas. I was doing a female version of The Odd Couple on the Road, uh, a theater piece. Yeah. (laughs) And I I was on a plane flying back to New York and I mean, flying back to Los Angeles. And I was sitting in the back of the plane and it's Christmas Eve and wait in one of the stewardess, willing. they're not stewardesses anymore, came up to me and said, um, are you by any chance the woman from Defending Your Life who played the waitress from heaven? And I said, yes, I am the waitress from heaven. And she said, oh, we thought you were. We want to move you up to the front in first class. We thought that would be fun. We'll so be up to first class. And things like that have happened two or three times because of that film. That film meant a great deal to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it for has really reassuring funny delightful idea about the afterlife mm-hmm. that anybody had ever dealt with i think it was i think it's one of the finest things he ever did i just think albert mm-hmm. brooks is a genius Same. and it was not well received it had an opening that was you know kind of mildly received but with your generation it became really a film that was beloved yes which i loved about it
2: Yeah, and it took me time, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think I was too young when I saw it. I saw it in the theaters with my family, and I I think I was too young to understand it. And I didn't like it the first time, I have to say. And then when I became more mature, and I watched it again, and I think that's part of, you know, we're sort of the rewatching generation, Mm -hmm. you know. It was always on TV. Realized how much I love this film. And almost had forgotten until recently that I had not liked it the first time. Oh, really? (laughs) I, I think I was like, 11, maybe? Like, I was young. Oh, that's
3: young. Yeah, my family really liked that movie, so it was often... If it was on TV, we would watch it. Isn't
1: that nice? That's See, I I love that about film. That's happened with a lot of films over time, that they snuck up on people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you're not in the right place. You're not in the right place or Mm -hmm. the right age. You know, it's like books, too. I've, I've had several books that I've read uh... many times in my life because it took me a while to get them they were too deep the first time i think when i picked up the sound and the fury the first time i was in high school and i thought yeah i knew it was beautiful writing i knew it was a beautiful story but i felt like i didn't have enough life experience to relate to it mm-hmm. and it took me years of you know i think i read it a couple of times before i went ah now i've got it and it's beautiful
3: i think that's just that is also an artist's mind I there are a couple books that i read every year and I find something different every year. And I've been doing that since I was about 14. And I... What are they? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Hmm. Oh, my favorite all-time book. I'm with you. Oh, I love that yeah. book. And it means something different every year. And then I read I read Dune every year by Frank Herbert. Oh, wow.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I love the Dune story. Oh,
3: and it just... That first one really reshapes my outlook on... Uh, on humanity and mysticism and political structure and the way that uh, the different classes interact. And I think it's very important for that. Right. And you just made me think very. about uh, Joni Mitchell talks about when she first, uh, as a creator, when she first released Both Sides Now in her 20s, mm. uh, the number of people who said that, who kind of scoffed at a young girl writing a a song of that depth and magnitude. And then when she re-recorded it, I, something like 20 or 30 years later, and her voice just sounds older and wiser and what it sounds like to listen to those two recordings just from the person who wrote it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's one of my all-time faves. Many, 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 many people love her. Yes. But she's just, and she was deep and complicated at 20. Yes, that she knew a, a lot singer. more than some people. <laughs> yeah, she did. She absolutely did.
2: Now, I know we really wanted to talk about your writing some more as well, but I feel like it also, I read this story reading up on you. Uh, Soap Dish is one of my favorite movies, which you and Marianne were in together and seen in the mall. And yeah, I read that, that that movie actually being on set really affected your writing.
1: It did. That's so interesting. Yes, uh, the, the, that's interesting that you know that and that somebody printed it, because I thought that was just a private story between Marianne and I.
2: It was in The Villager when when you did uh, your one-woman show, Stopping Traffic, in mm-hmm. New York. You were interviewed by The Villager, and, and you told the story, which I'd love for you to tell our audience. Oh, yes, that's
0: please. when I
1: told it. Oh, yeah. how
0: many, I told on myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, when Marianne and I did that, we auditioned several times for the part, and we worked really hard on it. And we were so excited to come to the set and we have gotten the parts and to be working with Whoopi and Sally Field, you know, in a wonderful scene and such a funny film. And so we came to the set and uh, when we went to rehearse the scene, uh, we rehearsed it and uh, did our lines and did our stuff. And the second time, and we were with a crowd of people, but we were the only people who had dialogue. And Whoopi Goldberg started as a stand-up, really, and doing one-person shows on Broadway. So I didn't know how much experience she ever had, if any, of being a small part in a film or the process or how you get the part or anything. So all that said, which I say for a reason, is we went to shoot it. And when we shot it, Whoopi said all of my lines and all of Mary Ann's lines. Oh. So we kind of did reactions. and That's exactly how we responded. Oh. (laughs) So when we were done, Mary Ann and I were a little confused if we were saying those lines or not or what was going on. And uh, the director came over to us and said, look, um, this is. This is how this goes sometimes. Whoopi heard that dialogue, and she hasn't got any dialogue in there, and she's just doing it because she doesn't know that you weren't just at limit. Oh. And we went, oh. And we accepted it. We, were, of course, were disappointed, but we accepted it. And, you know, kind of looked at each other and went, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we worked really hard for this, and it just went out the window. Mm-hmm. So when we were um, doing different shots and they were setting them up, at one point, um, Mary and I were talking and what we were standing there and she was talking and she looked at me and said, you know, the only reason why I'm standing here and you're standing there is because I write.
0: Mm. And Mary
1: stood there for a minute because she's got a lot of moxie. Uh-huh. And she said, well, I just want you to know something. She is an Emmy award winning writer.
3: Yes! <laughs> Mary, yeah, <laughs> which made me laugh. I can see her doing that. And Whoopi, well, well, good
1: for you. Write something for yourself. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that part of the story. <laughs> no, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Now, years later, I did, um, w- well, actually, just recently in the past five to ten years, I did a film with Whoopi in um, um, Virginia, um, The Big Stone Gap. And Whoopi and I worked together, and we talked about that and laughed about it. And she was fabulous in Big Stone Gap. She's terrific. That was a nice part, too, in a nice film, but very little, and that was a big release, so a lot of people don't know it. But if you know Adriana Triagiani, she has written a series of books based on Big Stone Gap that have been unbelievably successful. And she's got a huge following, and she writes these dear films about a hometown that is so unique, uh, really an old mining town that she grew up in, and how they all lived and worked together. And it's really extraordinary. She's quite the gal. I just love her. So that was a fun film to do. But it was fun to come full circle with Whoopi and get a chance to laugh about it later. And I said, I did write Whoopi. I finally wrote a one-woman show.
3: (laughs) We wanted to ask you about that. So we, we mentioned it a bit from when we did Moscow and the Potomac that you had done this, but yeah. we would love to hear from you uh, about the process and, and writing about living with bipolar and, and how that's the the
1: response you've gotten to that, what that was like for you. Well, it, it, I, it came to me. Um, of course, I had this episode. And I, what I didn't tell you before is I had my first episode two a week before I won the Emmy. So I was in the hospital when that ceremony was going on and then we found out the night after the ceremony that they presented the Emmys to the wrong team. They had presented them to the Young and the Restless, and then they read all the writers' names from the guiding lines. (gasps) So it took until that evening to figure out what had happened, and they actually had given the Emmys to the wrong people. First time they made a mistake. It's like the Oscars. It is. Can you believe it? Wow. Can you believe it? Exactly. Years before that incident. And so they decided to have a special ceremony for us, which they did. Anyway, so I was 37 years old when this happened, and I have had a lot of mania and a lot. My dear friend, Michael Patrick King, who has been my friend, we, we cleaned houses, we waited tables, we did all sorts of things together in New York and have been friends since we were pretty young, about 27. So, um, and he's younger than I am. He, I would tell him these stories and I'd be horrified at what had happened to me in the hospital or what was going on. And he would fall out of his chair and roll on the floor and say, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. And I'd say, Michael, you're an ass, you should go through this, it's not so freaking funny. And he said, Mary Pat, you got to write these stories. It took about 14 years of us struggling Mm. with that. Every now and then, he had a theater here called the Arcade in the Helms Building on uh, Venice Boulevard. And he would allow his friends or invite his friends, he paid for everything, to come in and do something that they didn't normally do. So if you acted, you had to write. If you wrote, you had to act. If you've never produced, you had to produce. And it was great for all of us to just stretch our wings and try other things. So I would come in and do different stories, episodes that I had had. And I had had an episode just before I shot Lorenzo's Oil. And I'd had the episode in New York, the inciting incident, they call it. And I've had subsequently about seven of them. The biggest one probably being the episode that I had in front of everybody on The Crucible. And I thought, if I write about these, I wonder if it would be helpful to anybody else to get the kind of recovery I've gotten. Because usually if you have as many episodes as I had and the disease is as strong as it is, it doesn't allow you to uh, work. So many people have just difficulty working. And I was having... A wonderful time working and success and I thought, I was nervous about telling people I had that because I thought there'll be people who won't want to work with me because of it and Michael would say to me, "Mary Pat for every person who doesn't want to work with you because of it, there'll be another 10 that want to work with you because of it, so tell your story. That's incredible. So I started writing then and um, I did it here in Los Angeles and it was received really well and then I got an opportunity to Lonnie Price uh, who's a fabulous director and a wonderful mm-hmm. actor. Yeah, yeah he's it's wonderful. Just, Oh my God, he's a wonderful person. Both Michael and Lonnie are magnificent men. I just don't know of men in the world who could listen to these stories over and over again, trying to help me communicate them so that they could be understood. And they delighted in every repeat. And I thought, there are people in the world who can't listen at all. And these guys have expertise in it. They were just great. Talk about, you know, I said, really, if anything healed me, it was you two birds being available Mm -hmm. and talking about this and putting me back on the planet and telling me I was funny and wonderful, even though I was having such difficulties with mental illness. They were just fantastic. So that was heaven.
3: There's nothing better than hearing firsthand stories from people who who are dealing with mental health struggles. I think we don't... It's not humanized enough, or it's used
1: as a... It isn't. You're right.
3: Yeah, it's used as as a euphemism. Um, I'd also love to ask you, because this is, you know, something that we're always interested in discussing is uh, terminology, um, and you as someone who who uses the phrase bipolar, have you experienced anything with the the conversation about saying manic-depressive versus bipolar? Do you have a preference as
1: someone who's experienced it? I... I This is what I finally came to. Manic depression makes you sound crazy. Mm-hmm. Bipolar, a lot of people are bipolar. A lot of people swing from extreme highs to extreme lows. And that seems less of a, a, a sentence than mm-hmm. your manic depressive. And with my doctors early on, I said, you know... Um, I am not going to tell you that I'm bipolar because I am actually Mary Pat Gleason and I'm navigating the dis-ease of bipolar disorder. That is not my identity. My identity is me, Mary Patrick. I'm Mary Patrick Gleason and I am not bipolar. That is something that I navigate. And they said, good for you, Mary Pat, good distinction. So that's what we went with, you know.
3: That's beautiful. That, like, that made me tear up a little bit. That's beautiful.
2: Oh. Something that you said in one of these interviews that really that I really took to was, if you laugh at something, it loses its power over you. If you can laugh about
1: it and talk about it, you can heal. I believe that. And I believe it's the truth in me. And interestingly enough, through this journey, I had a psychiatrist, Dr. Mark Fry, who created the Mood Disorders Clinic at the Mayo Clinic. He was just an intern when I started with him. And he was, well, not just an intern, but he was, he was an extraordinary man and a great listener, too. And he um, really went through this whole journey with me and then started asking me if I would speak to psychiatrists about my experience and what worked for me that they did and what they did that didn't work for me. So I would go to a lot of these conferences and then finally he asked me to do... Doctors every year have to go to what they call a continuing medical education, a CME, to get certified. And they have to do this every couple of years. And he would invite me as the final piece of the weekend to do my one-woman show. And I would do it at the Guthrie for them. So I did it at the Guthrie and um, uh, with some of the most astounding fine minds working on this working in the field of mental illness in the world. They're, they're, you just get brilliant people to come in for these things. So I got to do the show, and at the end of it, we were sitting on stage, and Mark said to me, uh, Mary Pat, do you know because of the advocacy that you've been doing all these years, that we now, that our psychiatrists are trained now, when a client comes in, to ask them to write their stories down. Then they come in for a session and they read their stories until they, you know, they keep being encouraged to write more or anything that occurs to them. And he said, we are finding that this is making a huge difference. And you are absolutely right. If they can get to laughter about it, it's almost as if it dissipates. It's the... And I said, "Well, that's how it worked for me with these two guys in my life." I said, I wanted to cry, and they'd laugh at me and I'd say, you're so mean. This is not a day at the beach." And they'd say, "It's hilarious." And then one day when I was writing, um, I was writing something, and Michael said, "See, "See, that makes me want to cry." And I said, well, Michael, some of this does make you want to cry. And he said, I am absolutely not interested in that from you. You are the only person I've met who's got this disease that makes me laugh. And that is healing. That's where your show is. It's in the healing. And I thought, bravo to him. He's got muscles. He's got muscles for conversation and truth. And he was right. He was absolutely right. I think the show has been effective because I think people relate. And because they laughed, I mean, one of, my, one of my first things that I thought was so funny was when I got home the first day from the hospital of my first episode, my mother was there from Minnesota. Sweet Minnesota, fabulously bright woman, but kind in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And I came home, and at that point I had been editing, so I had a red phone and a black phone in my apartment, and the red phone was for the studio only if they wanted to communicate with me. And the red phone rang, and I heard a woman say, Hello, Mary Pat, this is Sally Watts, and uh, you, you placed a phone call to me. I'm a relaxation therapist, and I'm calling to make an appointment with you. And then it went beep and ended. And my mother, who was sitting in the living room, said, Oh, Mary Pat, what on God's earth is a relaxation therapist? <laughs> and I said, Well, Mom, they they help you with... Uh, Oh, breathing exercises and things that you can do. And I said, you know, it might even help with your high blood pressure. And without missing a beat, she said, oh, Mary Pat, the day i go see a relaxation therapist is the day i wake up in the booby hatch. Uh, so I yep. <laughs> oh, my God. So I walked in the living room and I said, well, mom. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I am going to go see a relaxation therapist because I did wake up in the booby hatch. (laughs) Don't tell your sisters I said that. And I said, I am. I'm going to tell my psychiatrist. You said booby hatch to me the day I got out of one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's family. I know. Isn't it hilarious? And of course, she was just humiliated. But I said, oh, mom, this is just the beginning of this.
0: Mm-hmm. This is
1: just the beginning. I'm going to have people saying, "Oh my God, look at her! She should be on lithium," not knowing that I am. Then they'll be saying things like, "You know, that person's just absolutely crazy. They're insane." And I thought, you know, it's all out there. It's just in the, it's in the atmosphere, and and we really need to be educated and um and we do have to laugh about it too i want to say whenever i talk to people with mental illness they say get some muscles for being able to laugh at yourself Mm -hmm. we are crazy when people say we're crazy sometimes we are and you have to admit that Mm -hmm. you know you can't pretend you're not
3: yeah it's about it's about removing stigma and realizing that we're all people yeah
2: we've really had such an amazing time talking to you.
1: Well, how lovely. And you girls are so terrific. Oh, thank Just you. Just terrific. And so well-researched. I'm dying to know how your careers are going. I oh. want you both to be working your little heads off. Oh, you know? we
2: would like that we too. Do. <laughs> and,
3: and we do. You, you know how it is. It's a hustle. It is a hustle. But I, you're you're up to it, I can tell. You've got oh, the muscles thanks. for it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so touched by your 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 candor and your brilliant stories we all it I just loved hearing everything from you and clearly we just need to keep hanging out with you and Marianne's friend group um and we'll just have the best conversations
1: we would love that we would love that and you'd like our friend group right in
3: I mean I do we do follow Marianne on Instagram
1: and it looks like she has a pretty good time yeah the museum oh she does and she's one of the most powerful activists I've ever met I mean, her work with Heifer is just stunning. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: uh, Heifer's a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. group. Yeah, and she
1: is a powerful force there.
2: And hey, you returned to Will and Grace with yes. their revival. Welcome maybe back. we'll see you on Murphy Brown again and we can talk <laughs> another time.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I only hope so. That would be really fun. And you girls have a terrific day. And, and I just think this is brilliant what you're doing. Good for you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. You too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. You too. I thank will. you. Mary. Bye. 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 Okay, bye-bye.
2: You can follow us on social media, on Twitter,
3: Instagram, and Facebook at MurphyBrownPod. And if you want more information, you can go on our website, which is MurphyBrownPod.com, or email us at MurphyBrownPod at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.